All right, Revelation chapter 15. That's where we'll be at tonight. Revelation chapter 15 is a short chapter uh, compared to uh, others. Only eight verses in this text. And um, <clears throat> let me give you just a very brief introduction to help, uh, help you understand the, the, the scenery that's going on here. We are still in this um, uh, parenthetical time uh, between the, 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 the blowing of that last trumpet, which that was the unveiling of the, of the next seven judgments, or your, your Bibles may use the word plague. I'm going to talk about that uh, while the word plague is used here as we move through this study. But, but there was some time that we needed to understand uh, what's happening here. And so for the past several chapters, as we've been reading and studying, that's exactly what's been going on. And, and tonight, with, with the final background visions given, if you see here in letter A in your introduction, John now turns his attention to the angelic preparations to the angelic preparations. As you know, for the seal judgments and for the trumpet judgments, angels were in charge of dispensing them. And so and such will be the case for the, for the bowl judgments. Um, it is, it is a, a, the final outpouring of God's wrath uh, through, through these judgments here. The, the contents of the seal and the trumpet judgments may have been severe, and they were severe as we saw them, uh, as, as we have studied them. But they will be overshadowed by the severity of what will come forth from the seven bowls. We, we, as the old saying goes, we haven't seen nothing yet. Uh, we, th- this is going to be some tremendous stuff going on here uh, with the, uh, in terms of severity of these judgments. It, there, there are two big movements here in this text. The first movement is going to be in verses 1 through 4, and then the latter movement will be in verses 5 through 8. So let me read this text, and you can follow along with me in, in your copy of God's Word, and then I'll uh, give some uh, explanation to it and, and move on to some application as well. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. It's interesting that just before we get into this devastating um, outpouring of of the, the wrath of God in these vials or in these bowls, we see a, a picture of worship going on here. Uh, worship is the dominant theme in the Scriptures. Uh, it is the dominant theme over salvation. Salvation is the means for humanity to be able to worship God again. But, de- but worship is, is, is the crown jewel. It is the centerpiece of what God demands from all of us. The Bible says that God is a, is, is a jealous God, and He will not tolerate your worship with anyone else. That just won't be possible. 
You can get away with it for a season, but in the end, you'll be judged for it. And there's a lot of things we do worship, obviously. That's why it's important for us to remember, worship to God comes first, period, end of story. Everything else in our lives is and always will be and should be secondary. We should teach our children worship, teach them how to worship, teach them where to worship, teach them when to worship. We, worship is just, is just key. And so before we see anything else about the remainder of these judgments, we will see worship. That's the scene there. That's the, the blank you can fill in, uh, the, the worship. That's the word there for letter A. Letter B. Preceding the worship is John's account of the location of worship. Now, this is interesting because he's describing something that we can hear in an old gospel song about this glassy sea. Well, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. I'm just going to kind of read to you uh, the, the notes. But do you all have the handout for tonight for chapter 15? Okay. All right. Just make sure you have a handout. Uh, do we have enough? Does everybody have one? Okay. Um, I just want to make sure everybody's got one because, I don't know, just some reason I thought to ask that tonight. I normally don't, but um, just want to make sure everybody's good with it. All right, listen to this uh, uh, remarks that uh, was given by R.C. Sproul. The the sea in verse 2 is paralleled with the image of the sea in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. We've already studied that before, obviously. This imagery might suggest a number of associations. Uh, The image in in chapter 15 in verse 2 calls to mind the waters of the Red Sea. Look look at this. That they, the, the, this is a sea of glass mingled with fire and, 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 and also those who had conquered the beast. This, this sea here, there, there was some, a tumultuous time here that John is describing. Uh, much like what you would expect those waters of the Red Sea to have been going through during the time of, of Israel's exodus of Egypt. The defeat of Pharaoh and the pushing back of the waters foreshadowed God's final victory over evil. And there's a cross-reference of Isaiah 51 that uh, uh, you can uh, read at at a later time. But if so, the sea of glass pictures water subdued under God's power, Uh, God's power. And I will tell you, it takes it takes a lot uh, for um, for nature to provide a sea that is absolutely smooth, like like a mill pond. And I've only seen that once or twice in my life. I remember being at the ocean as a child in North Carolina growing up. Man, we had our fair share of hurricanes growing up. And I recall distinctly a couple times in my childhood seeing the Atlantic Ocean as smooth as glass. It looked like a mill pond. But that was only going to be for a season because we all knew growing up, we kind of knew what that meant. There was some trouble on the way. And then sure enough, a tropical storm or depression or hurricane, some type of weather event, nor'easter even, would be coming in. Remember, the sea being so still is, is a, an echo reminder of what Jesus did when he calmed the storm. And remember, and he said what? Peace be still to the Sea of Galilee and calmed it right down. And his disciples were just amazed. You know, who is this man that has the power over nature like this?
Moreover, the extent and the beauty of the crystal-like sea when taken together with the precious stones in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, and also in Revelation 21, which we haven't gotten to yet, suggests the mag- magnificence and the preciousness of God's throne. Um, the, the, the numerous, numerous parallels elsewhere with the temple might suggest that this sea is the heavenly counterpart of the sea in Solomon's temple that you read about in 1 Kings chapter 7. Now I want to jump down to something, uh, this last comment that I put down here, you may want to underline in a market. It is consistent with the style of revelation to weave together a number of Old Testament images, weave them together in such a way to, to bring a new perspective on them. That's one of the reasons why I find that a futurist interpretation of revelation seems to, uh, uh, seems to actually um, bring more harmony to the remainder of the Bible than perhaps other viewpoints of revelation as a futurist. Uh, the, that position uh, says that many of the things in Revelation have yet to have happened, particularly those events of Revela- Revelation chapter 4 and onward. They have yet to have happened just yet. And so when you think about all the things, if you think about it this way, when you read the Old Testament, through the Old Testament, when you read the Gospels, yes, there are miracles Yes, there are texts that are kind of difficult to understand. Yes, we have sayings of Jesus that are even a little bit difficult to understand. But we, but we have a greater understanding in their context. It just makes sense. Therefore, when you get to Revelation chapter 4 and onward, and especially now here in 15, is in this category, you can have what Sproul is suggesting. You're going to have this blending of all of these images, all, all of the stuff that God was trying to teach us about his worship is now going to be coming together. And it's coming together in such a way that when you, when you start wading into the text, like verse 15 here, or chapter 15, and you start wading through the text, if you're not careful, you're going to be neck deep in cross-references of stuff and of imagery that goes all the way back to the Old Testament because now God is bringing everything together for this, this, this final end of humanity and this final judgment. And so I, I, when we talk about this sea here, and I, and I gave you all these references, it's not to confuse you. It's just to underscore the fact that when, when, when the end is near, when the end's coming, when, the, when, when we are seeing God's final judgment poured out, everything will start making sense. And we'll start understanding, yeah, okay, now I get it. Now I see. And, and, and it'll be like the connected dots. You know, you, you've got all the dots. You can understand the dots. You can understand the numbers beside the dots. But you don't see the big picture until you've connected them all. Letter D, John's first description was what looked like a sea of glass mixed with this fire. Uh, this is, again, this is the same sea that was described in verse 4, 6. Um, in chapter 4, verse 6, beside this sea, John saw the martyred dead, the same group described in, in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 7, verses 9 through 17. And uh, uh, that this was the... Um, this great multitude from, from, from every single nation. And remember that this coincided with the 144,000 that were sealed. Okay, it was in that same chapter. These saints are mentioned as singing two songs. Now, this is interesting. The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. But the lyrics in verse three, verses 3 and 4, if you look here, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true your ways, O King of the nations. And then verse 4 to go along with it. They are for one song. Well, how can you take two songs, but you've got 
one set of verses, but they're called two different songs. Well, I like uh, uh, what, what was uh, suggested by some commentators. The descriptions of the song bear upon the identity of the saints. And you may want to add who, who are singing them. For instance, the Jewish believers have a song, or you might could better say are singing this song based upon Moses. Gentile believers can't sing that song because they didn't have the law. They, they, they was, that was for the Jew. But what song do they have? They can sing the same lyrics because they have been redeemed by the Lamb. Remember, there's one story of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Only one story. God dealt with His chosen people in a particular way to show and to demonstrate to them that God's standard is here, way, way up here. And I'm going to give you all the prescriptions, but you still won't follow them. I can guarantee it. Why? Because you're a fallen people. You just won't follow it. You're going to turn away from me and you will not worship me. That's why I'm going to have to provide a way of salvation that involves my grace. And I'm going to have to provide my son as a sacrifice for the sacrifices you're not doing right and refuse to do it all. And this sacrifice is going to be final and complete. But still, the faithful Jews in the Old Testament, they, just like we, are justified by faith, by our belief. Theirs was a belief in a forecoming fulfillment of the promise. Our faith is in the fulfillment of the promise, in the person of Jesus. So that's why it's the same song, but it's going to have two kind of different titles to it. Because it's hearkening back to these two clear types of people came through the same way, but God dealt with them a little bit differently. The, 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 um, the difference in the song doesn't mean that the Jews and Gentiles were treated differently in terms of salvation. I already talked about that. But that their history and their relationship to God had different roots. It was just a, a way different thing. Matter of fact, it was... It was it was a problem for for the uh, for the first believers. You remember that um, uh, throughout history there have been what's called church councils. Church councils are when the leaders of the Christian church would gather together and meet over particular issues. The very first council in church history is recorded in the scriptures. Did you know that? Does anybody know which one it is? Do you know where it's at? In Jerusalem. In, Jerusalem, in the text, do you know where it's found in in our scriptures? Yeah, he had a part in it. Book of, which book really talks about the establishment of the church? Book of Acts chapter 15. Book of Acts chapter 15. And and the Jews were having trouble accepting Gentile believers. They said, well, if you're going to, if you're going to be one of us, you're going to have to take on uh, all of our prescriptions and mandates, you know, of tradition. And so that created quite a bit of turmoil. And the decision was, no, your tradition has nothing to do with being justified by faith. By the way, that's still true for you and I. Your traditions don't play into justification by faith. Okay? They just don't. And so that's, that's what was clarified there. Um, yeah? Yes, sir? 
You know, it's funny when you're writing a dissertation, you have to be careful with your yeses and your noes. And you have to be careful with making uh, blanket statements of fact. Um, I'm going to say no, that what God was revealing through Abraham, uh, through, excuse me, through Moses, through the law, was it, was it still pointing people to God? Yeah, absolutely. Because they were called to obey. I mean, there was a certain, there was obviously an expectation for it. They were still demanded to worship. Um, in other words, uh, the, the images in the Old Testament might have been a little different, but there was the same message behind it. I had I had a, a professor to say, well, I think this is the greatest illustration between, let's, let's call Moses and Jesus, Old Testament, New Testament. If we had all the lights turned off in, in this worship center and we walked in here, could not see our hand in front of our face, are the pews still here? Okay, right? Wall still here? Okay. Pulpit, stage, chairs, choir loft, the board here, all this stuff, all the appointments still be here, flowers. You won't be able to see it. That's the Old Testament. Turn all the lights on. Everything is still here. That's the New Testament. So it, it's, it's, we're going to talk about the law here in just a second in the text. And I think you might get a better answer when we get to, um, in verse 5 particularly. So let's, let me get down to here and then we can, um, if you have any further discussion about it, we can get to it there. Uh, the lyrics of uh, verses 4 and 5 should be considered. The idea that God is the king of the nations suggests both his preeminence in creation. And his sovereignty over the nations of the world. John echoes the Apostle Paul, what he said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow under heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every nation, uh, they're, they're going to they're confess it. Now, that is not saying that everyone gets saved. Okay, A lot of people get confused with that. Well, that means everybody's saved. No, no, that's, that's called universalism. Universalism teaches that everybody will be saved in the end. I've been to funerals where they got saved before they could put that casket in the ground, you know, type thing. They preached that boy into heaven. But that's not the case. In verse 5, John explains that when the nations observe the righteous acts of God revealed in these plagues, all protests of fairness and justice are effectively curtailed. All protests. I mean, no, you, you won't be able to do it. You, you won't be able to protest. You, you'll have nothing to bring and to charge God. Rather, recognizing that God is eminently righteous in his acts of judgment, the nations both fear God and bring glory to his name. That's, if you look at that in verse 4, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. The reason why they can't protest is because they will, they will see a perfect judgment being given. Because it's coming from a perfect judge. All right, now let's talk about the seraphim, the, the angels, this angelic order that will be responsible for dispensing these bowls. Or you may have a translation that says vials. It's the same word. It can be translated both ways, Just these, these uh, vials or, or these bowls here. Uh, after, 
After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness. You may have a version that I think King James uses the word testimony. I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, it was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. First image that we see here is this, this tent or this temple that, was, uh, that we see here. It's the, the tabernacle of testimony. And it's the heavenly equivalent of the tabernacle that was with Israel in the wilderness. Now, um, what is interesting, um, I'm trying to recall his name. It was an Old Testament professor, used to be at the Southeastern Seminary, wrote an excellent article about the temple or the tabernacle and the meaning of the tabernacle relative to the Garden of Eden. John Selhammer, that was his name, John Selhammer. Um, if you Google it, I think it's, I mean, if it's one M or two M's in his last name, but if you'll Google John Selhammer, uh, the, the Garden of Eden plus Tabernacle, and it should be maybe a PDF that you can find. Basically, um, he that that article explains something I mentioned a while ago that there there is this this image uh, excuse me this presence of God and worship consistent all throughout the scriptures and how it was represented for um for in terms of our humanity it began with the garden. That was our worship. God came and they walked together in the cool of the day. You remember, that's what the text says in the book of Genesis. They walked together in the cool of the day. That was fellowship. That, that was worship there together. Well, after sin, God provided Israel with the way for, for them to have a special presence of him. Tabernacle first, then in the temple, destroyed, then another rebuilt temple through the Old Testament. That's why in the New Testament, there's no more need for a tabernacle or temple. Where is the temple of God? We are the temple. We are, we, we are that building. That, that, is, that is why in, you know, when you, um, you go to, uh, uh, well, we, we, we work, I work with the Tiwa. Uh, our churches that we're going to plant there, we will not be concerned with a brick and mortar building. Because that's not the church. As we make disciples, they are the church. That is why they will have church in their home. That's why in first century, they had church in their home. Matter of fact, the whole concept of a building, you know, to be affiliated with, with, a, with a church, um, I know it's ingrained into us. And yes, they've been around for a long, long time, but that was not the original plan per se. And we could talk a lot about church history and the development of buildings. And I, I could even talk to you about the architecture of buildings and why it's changed. By the way, you know, architecture of buildings have become, we could, I heard one guy talk about it was, it's become now less sacred. Used to be you build a church and if you look at it from the top, you'd have the, the main aisle and pews. Now looking from the top, you would have the back here or the, the top would be where the, where the stage or where the pastor would be or the choir or whatever. 
And then you would have two alcoves off to the side. When you look at it from the top, it would be in the shape of a cross. That was intentional, by the way. We don't build churches like that a whole lot anymore, if ever, you know. Nothing really, you know, not to make an argument one way or another on that, but, but the point here is this. If, if God dwelt in certain places and that was not yet his final answer, but leading Israel to understand that they are to worship, but then his final act would be to, to send his son and the presence of his son would be in us. That is the, 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 the presence of God being in us. We are now the church. You know, we, it just brings a brand new light on it. Letter B, the testimony, that's the word in quotations there, the, t- the, the testimony referred to is the Ten Commandments, which Moses placed in the Ark of the Tabernacle. Therefore, the law of the Lord is his testimony, which does what? It reveals his will. So that goes back to Brother Allen's question a while ago. It's going to be, we'll call it the same. Okay. The Ten Commandments, what we call the, the, um, actually, you know, the law of God is more than just 10, right? Okay. It's, it's actually really, really long. What we memorize in Sunday school, we call it the Decalogue. That's the, that's the word for it. The first 10 commandments. You're only memorizing the first 10. There's a bunch of them after that. If you go to the book of Leviticus, you can spend all night long reading it. But, uh, but the first 10 is called the Decalogue, right? You know, that, uh, the, the, the ones that we uh, memorize in, in, in Sunday school. It is to show the will of God. It is to show what is the will of God. It's his desire. It's his intent for, human, for humanity, for his people really at that time to relate to him. How will you interact with me now? Because, because listen, now there is, a, there is a, 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 a veil of sin that separates us. There is this, you know, and we talk about it when we witness to other people, we talk about this, there's this distance between us and God and it's sin. So the way you approach me now, you're going to have to do it differently than what, you know, your, your original mom and dad, Adam and Eve did. You're not going to be able to walk with me during the cool today. You're going to have to do some sacrifices. You're going to have to go through rituals and all these things just to get into my presence. And then, I'll, I'll, and then I'm going to institute the priesthood after that. And then he's going to be the only one that can get into the Holy of Holies to atone for all the sins of Israel and all that stuff. And he's going to have to keep repeating this over and over and over again. And you can, you can see how laborious and you can actually see how easy it would be for Israel to turn their back on him. Because they would try to charge him with things. Well, you're making it kind of difficult, Lord. Well, no, I've given you a plan. I've given you directives. You can, you can have atonement for your sins. Remember when the vipers came and bit all the Israelites, remember, and Moses was given a command? to put the serpent on, on, a, on a staff and hold it up, and if they looked, they were healed. That was a process. Maybe not as many steps as other processes of worship, but it was a process. But what was at the core of all those processes? No matter if the, if the process of worship had two steps or 20 steps, what, what, what did the Israelites have to have in all of those? Faith. They had to have faith. 
Yeah. He had to have faith. And so you, you see this. He says, after this, I looked in the sanctuary of, the, of this, this tent of testimony, this tabernacle of testimony was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels. What he's saying is, is you know, what God instituted from the beginning, that is his standard. I mean, just because we don't have the law and we have to um, follow the law like Israel was commanded to follow law doesn't mean that the law is invalid. As a matter of fact, it's quite valid. Thou shalt not murder is a pretty big deal today. Okay? Honor your father and mother is a pretty big deal. You know, the whole adultery thing, that's a pretty big deal. Covetousness, that's a pretty big deal. Not taking God's name in vain, that's a pretty big deal. We're, we're now shown this window and we can look in and see who God was from the very beginning. That's what we're seeing. And so out of, out of this place come these angels, these seraphim, with seven plagues. Verse 6 says they're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their, their chest. Now, what's interesting is that... Uh, these these uh, plagues, the word plagues is actually, that's the word used here. That's the way it's translated. It's proper. Um, the only place, if you look here at letter C, the only place elsewhere in Scripture where the same phrase occurs is in Leviticus 26, verse 21. These warnings were meant to bring true believers to repentance. Now, that was in that text. Same thing's kind of going on here to bring people to repentance. If this background is included behind the bold judgments, then the afflictions cited there not only purge and punish, but also serve as warnings to repent for, for these judgments. But Under B, uh, mercy. Yeah, the, the tabernacle with the ark also represented the mercy of God. Thank you. But the emphasis is only successively severer ordeals because of lack of repentance. All of which ends in final judgment. If you notice, um, people... You know, the Bible says that uh, the Word of God will not return void. It will accomplish that which is set out to do. And in the margin where that verse is located in my Bible, I have, I have this little note, and it says this, For some it will save, but for others it will harden. Did you know that? Some folks harden their hearts at the Word of God. Some folks in a Baptist church will harden their hearts against the Word of God. If you recall what Pharaoh did, Bible says, and this is interesting because people try to trip me up on this, um, but it doesn't really work. Um, you remember in Exodus when uh, the, the plagues were happening? The Bible says in, in Exodus chapter 7, right at the beginning of, of, of these plagues, here's what happened. They'll call out this verse. Say, Pastor, why in Exodus chapter 7 verse 3, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, you got to understand, God knows more than you do. 
God knows more than I do. God knows more than all of us in this room put together. His knowledge is infinite and it's perfect. He knows how Pharaoh would respond. Because if you look through the remainder of these plagues and how, uh, how Pharaoh responded, let me remind you. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. Chapter 7, verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Chapter 8, verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Verse 7 in chapter 9. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened, but he did not let the people go. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Verse 35, chapter 9. So the heart of Pharaoh was was hardened. Um, Pharaoh wasn't going to let those people go. God knew that all along. That's the way the truth of God is. It, it, it's amazing. Um, it really is. But more than amazing, it is, it is disappointing. I'm going to tell you one of the great disappointments in my ministry is to watch people harden their hearts to God's truth. It, it, is, it is one of the most disappointing things um, and, and no offense to, to seniors, but I, I see it in seniors more than I do younger people because they have all their years of experience working against them. They really do. And you've got to be careful. I'm talking about seniors, period. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why, that's why uh, it is rare to see seniors come to Christ the older that they get. Mm-hmm. But they have all of that stuff carried with them, the years of experience, all the, all the wisdom that they've acquired, but they've got it in there, traditions, all that stuff. And as they grow and as they learn more about Christ, post-salvation, uh, it, can, it, can become, it can become difficult. But I see it, I see it in all age categories. Where you'll, you'll, you'll show them God's truth. You'll show them God's word. And some will get angry. I've heard people say, I don't care what the Bible says. That's a quote. I don't care what the Bible says. Okay? So what's happening here? Something very similar. These judgments are to show people this is God's perfect judgment. You've got a chance to repent. But for some, it's just going to harden their heart. Verse 8, or letter D here. Verse 8 describes the sovereignty and majesty. And listen, it's not all bad. You say, but this is God's judgment. It is bad. Well, well, for those who are not repentant, yes. But don't you remember back early on in our study, we found that there was a group of people who says, why, Lord, why have you not avenged our death? That's what the saints were asking of God. Well, now they're seeing it. For us to be witness and for us who are redeemed, who are repentant, who who, who, who love the Lord, we want to see justice because we're seeing it come from someone who's perfect and he, therefore his justice will be perfect. Some of you, I've, I've shared with you the story about the time that uh, Tiff and I, we lived in, in an apartment in a townhouse and uh, uh, Elijah was born at the time. We didn't have, Sarah wasn't born yet. I don't, I don't think if Sarah was born yet. Uh, but we had the break-in. 
remember breaking. Sarah wasn't born yet, was she? Okay. Uh, Our house was broken into while we were away. Thank God while we were away. And they, you know, and they, they cleaned us out and, uh, you know, stole a bunch of, you know, stuff. And, and so, um, uh, get a knock on the door, like, um, real, real late at night. And it was a police officer. He said, Hey, are you, uh, Chris Woodard? Yes, sir. Says, we think we've just caught the guy who stole his stuff. We need you to come down and verify these are your belongings in his vehicle. I said, okay. And so, um, uh, went there and, and sure enough, he had some of our belongings. Uh, lo and behold, later on, the trial came and I had to be a witness, uh, for the prosecution. And I answered the questions. I was direct, like he said, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and the guy actually got away with it. Got, got away with it. Now, okay, now this is, this is tricky. Was justice served? The answer is yes. It was according to the law. Here's what happened. The reporting... And the way that the officers handled the crime scene delegitimized, and there's a bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo stuff, but I, I, in, it made sense when, when they explained it. But that's why the guy was able to get off. But was he still guilty? Absolutely. Yeah, he, he had the stuff. But according to the law, justice was served. But, but, the criminal was not punished. So the answer also would be no. The reason why we would see God's majesty and we would call this majestic is because we are actually seeing the people who are now unregenerate, unrepentant. They will be receiving and, and the world in and of itself, as you see these judgments poured out, they will be receiving a perfect judgment. As hard as that is to say, we will be seeing what perfect justice will look like. And it will only come from God. Look here. Verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So almost in, in, in this one phrase you have you know, this wrath, this, this anger, something bad. But he's a God who lives forever. So it's an interesting um, combination of, of words there. Verse eight, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. That sounds like Isaiah's vision. Remember in Isaiah chapter six, that sounds like his vision. Sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from its, from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So going back to letter D here at the very bottom, when these judgments should be completed, then the wrathful presence and agency of God being withdrawn, he might again be approached. So there's a time in which he needs to be, you won't be able to approach him and he's going to be doing his thing. Then once that's done, we'll be in his presence. Now, there are four things of... Um, uh, four statements I like to bring to your attention in terms of the way we can think about this text and in principles of application. Number one is this: the wrath of God is a biblical doctrine that can't be disputed or ignored. Um, the, the you know I, I think we got to keep everything in balance. Um, God is is equal wrath, justice, mercy, love, grace. I mean, he, he is equal parts to all that. Uh, I do not think that there is a theology that could build one that is superior over anything else, uh, per se. Um, 
but we have to understand that his wrath is equal, which, which means that salvation is not just a therapeutic thing for you or me. It's not just to make you feel good. It is a fact that, that because of what Jesus did, God appeased, Jesus appeased the wrath of God by taking your sins to the cross. His wrath is a very real thing. He is very angry, can be very angry. Jonathan Edwards, great uh, 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 preacher of the uh, 18th century, a famous well-known sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody ever heard of that? You can find that online. You can Google it you, and, and uh, you can actually read it in its entirety. Back in that day, you would read you would read the, uh, the sermons. A preacher would have a manuscript and all he would do he would just read it. He wouldn't tramp around the stage and turn back flips or get anybody's attention to tell jokes. He'd just read it. That's what he did. That's what Jonathan Edwards did. He read. Um, and the text was from Deuteronomy uh, uh, 32. Uh, the, 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 the verse says, Their foot shall slide in due time. And there's been, uh, there's been stuff written on the reaction of the people during the reading of that sermon. It was said that when Jonathan Edwards was reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people in the midst of the crowd started wailing out loud, grasping on to this to the pews and to the chairs in front of them, hanging on for dear life, thinking that hell itself had opened up and is getting ready to swallow them whole. Wow. I, just, I would love for movements like that to happen again. I would love for people to get scared of God one more time. And, and because out of that response came a great awakening that Edwards was an instrumental part of. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Embrace his wrath. Understand that it's a part of who he is. And when it comes to sin, he is very angry over that. And who can blame him? It is what prevented us from worshiping him. Letter B. True worship includes singing to God about his perfect deeds and ways. There's a song that's recorded here. Um, it's funny to read stuff about worship because there'll be books on worship that's only about the music. And then there'll be other volumes written about worship. And then it's about everything in your life, you know, which is true. I mean, it's not just the songs you sing. But I think we need to be mindful of the songs that we're singing. Uh, I'm a blended kind of worship guy, which means this. Um, my favorite songs are the oldest hymns imaginable. Uh, matter of fact, my, my hymns, my favorite hymns are older than your favorite hymns. I can almost guarantee you. <laughs> I like this stuff written by Puritans. I like this stuff written like in the 1500s. Those, those are my hymns. Okay. Oh, hell gladdening light. That's one of my favorites. Anybody know that one? You probably know that was the first hymn ever written, by the way. No, no, no. But uh, basically, if they were written by dead theologians, they're my favorite hymns, okay? Well, now, over the past 10 years or so, we are seeing a resurrection of the methodology and of the language 
of these wonderful songs and hymns again. And here's, and here's why it's, it's a glorious resurrection because it's taking the focus off of you and putting it back on God. We are singing songs about the, 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 about the person and the work of Jesus, not about how good it makes you feel. I'm glad it will make you feel good, but we've had enough songs about that. And it's had its effect, I can promise you. Because that's why, and, and, I'm, and I'm proud of our younger generations who are moving away from the therapeuticness of church. They're not designing church to make you feel good anymore. They are designing church and designing worship to get the most worship out of you. And to prepare you for worship on Monday. And, you know, that's, that's why I like Wednesday nights. I'm, I'm, I, I'm of the... I am personally convicted that Wednesday night is one of the most impactful times of meeting for us because it's right in the middle of the week. It's right when we have had, you know, I had Elijah take it to the doctor on Monday. I'm in the hospital on Tuesday. I needed this tonight. In a way, this was therapeutic. Talking about the wrath of God is therapeutic. You know, talking about his glorious nature does wonders for me, Right. But what are we singing about? What are we talking about? It is, it is God's perfect deeds, God's perfect ways. I'm telling you, God must be the center of worship. No other person, no other thing but God. Let her see. Ultimately, all nations will bow before God. My goal is and my heart's desire is to be uh, leading a congregation who wants to impact and touch those nations to get as many of them as we possibly can to repent before that time comes. We want them to be on the right side of kneeling before God. You follow me? Because there'll be a wrong side. We want them on the right side. Letter D. The full presence of the glory of God is more than any created being can endure. That's, that's why we won't even able to enter the full presence of God dispensing his wrath. It's just, it's just something we can't, we can't tolerate. Remember, Moses wanted to get a glimpse of it, remember? And um, God said, okay, but the only thing you're going to see of me is just my backside. You couldn't handle anything else. I mean, really. Remember, because as, as God passed by, he put his hand over. Remember, he put him in the cleft of rock, put his hand over Moses and walked by. And as he was leaving, Moses only saw the backside of God's presence moving on. Remember? And that was all that he could even stand and muster. And then, and then when we do get into the, the, you know, like full varsity, big time presence, we, we act weird. You know, think about Peter, James and John on transfiguration. Right? They saw the glory of Jesus. They they saw the Christ. And Peter wanted to build an RV resort out of it. You know, Lord, let's build some tents here, you know. Uh you know, yeah, it's yeah, I'm glad we're here. Let's let's take up an offering type thing. Uh yeah, you, we just can't handle it. That's why, listen, that's why. That's why when we get to heaven, when we enjoy God forever, we won't be in the same shape we are right now. Because the shape we are in right now, we can't handle it. We'll have a new body. We'll, we'll, we'll just be, we'll be better off anyway. So what's the whole point of, of, of chapter 15? We need to understand that God did not enter into these judgments lightly. He did not, the, the, the plan and the purpose and the dispensing of these judgments 
they weren't an afterthought. They were carefully calculated and a, and a wonderful part of God's plan. That's why the Lord is making John privy to, to, to these things. And, and thankfully so, we get to see a glimpse of it. We need to have this reminder of how good and how majestic God is because we're going to be entering into a very, very dark time of the book of Revelation over the next several weeks.